tortoise. Joining BBC presenter Amal Rajan were four renowned journalists from the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Guardian and Tortoise. They talked about Weinstein and Me Too, phone hacking, the Wirecard scandal and Iranian hit squads operating in London. And they discussed, crucially, how to make expensive investigations sustainable in the current news climate. My name is Amol, I work at the BBC. I've got four uh, giants of journalism uh, here alongside me. Dean Baquet, who's just stepped down from running the New York Times. Dean still runs a, an investigative uh, unit there. Rula Khalaf, if I pronounce that, I've got that roughly right, Khalaf, um, who uh, is the editor of the FT and has overseen some absolutely enormous investigations and scoops. Nick Davies, who led the charge on, um, uh, if charge is the operative word, on phone hacking, which is very timely given events just down the road, uh, and then James Harding, who was um, appointed editor of the Times at the age of, I think, 14, was it, James? Um, uh, and then director of BBC News, where um, made some excellent hires, if I may say, uh, and then founded uh, Tortoise Media. I want to walk you guys through some of your biggest investigations, and just because of time, I'm going to do it in a, um, in a very formatted way. So I'm going to ask you all three questions, which is, um, first of all, where do these investigations start? Secondly, what was the toughest moment? And third, do you have any evidence that it actually helps you, not just editorially, but with your business? So what I want to try to get to is um, some evidence that actually people say people won't pay for journalism, young people don't want to pay for journalism. Actually, that's complete bollocks. There is a lot of evidence that people will pay for this stuff. So let's start with you, Dean. Let's talk you through Harvey Weinstein. This was a huge cultural moment beyond America. Where did it start? So about 25 years ago, Bill O'Reilly, on, a, on a, one of his um, rants, ranted about a woman who had made accusations against him. And nothing ever happened. Nobody paid attention to it. And I, and I made a note to myself that that was worth pursuing at some point. So when I became editor of the New York Times, and after, um, there were, after the publication of other stories about Fox, I decided I wanted to get to the bottom of this one woman who made an accusation against Bill O'Reilly. Um, we ended up doing a series of stories about O'Reilly and how he had paid huge settlements. Um, and, it, and it struck me that, that that was a new device that I'd never thought of, that, that the way to make these, sort of these, uh, these assertions of actions by, bad, by leaders against women was to actually show they'd made settlements. And suddenly, that was something you could hang your hat on, something very specific. So after doing the Bill O'Reilly stories, which led to his firing, I called a group of reporters and editors in, and I said, let's look at these. There must be others like this. So a few weeks later, Jody Cantor and, and Megan Tui came in and said, we keep hearing the name Harvey Weinstein. Um, so I said, well, dig into it. By, by the way, speaking of economics, at the time, Harvey Weinstein was one of our biggest advertisers, which I didn't know, nobody mentioned. I could see he had ads, but we didn't, we didn't pay attention to it. And they just started coming back with these amazing stories about Weinstein. Um, you asked the toughest moment, there were two. The first tough moment was realizing that the New Yorker was working on a similar story. <laughs> <laughs> and we, never, we, all, we always talk about it, the greatness of investigative reporting, but it's also a competitive sport. Um, so that was upsetting. But the other one was Weinstein wanted to talk with me one-on-one -on -one alone without the reporters. And I have How did a, that message reach you? 
he started calling people who knew me, started calling friends and mutual friends, people I'd worked with, journalists, people in the, in the world of entertainment who I'd known in LA and New Orleans and my travels. He wanted a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him. And I have a hard and fast rule. If you are the subject of an investigative project, you do not get to meet alone with me and you do not get to meet off the record with me because I don't want to know anything the reporters can't know. It's like that to me, that's a that's like a mortal sin to pull out my old catechism. You can't. I don't want to know stuff that the reporters don't know. And he also he wanted to talk as like power guy to power guy. Right. Well, I don't want to have that kind of relationship, frankly, with anybody. So finally, he, he kept calling and I had two conversations with him through the through the story. One, I just picked up my phone one day and it was him and he asked to meet. And I said, nope, you have to meet with the reporters. And the second one was. I walked past the room the night before, two nights before we were to publish, and he was screaming at the two reporters and their editors, who happened to be women, and which which is a dynamic with him we now know. And it was I I was furious because it was abusive. And I walked into the room, and I told him he had to shut up, give us his comment, or we were going to publish without it. Um, impact. I don't just say, how did he take that? How did he take it? He said, he said, you're bullying me. <laughs> and I said, and I, I do have a temper. One of the reporters wrote in the book that they were worried I would lose my temper because they've seen my temper. And I kept calm. And I said, I'm not bullying you. He said, well, I'm going to call the Washington Post. And I said, that's great. You should do that. <laughs> but we're going to publish our story. Um, impact. It obviously had impact on the world far more than, than I ever anticipated. Do you have, I mean, the New York yeah. Times subscriptions grew sharply. Mm -hmm. uh, I do editorship with Mark Thompson, uh, who was your CEO, deserves some credit for that as well, as to all the other journalists who worked on the paper. Do you have any evidence of a discernible specific impact from the Weinstein investigation, i.e. people came to you saying, I like what you're doing on Weinstein type thing? Yeah, I don't know if I can say that there was a specific right. increased result. But I do think that whenever we do big investigative stories, Weinstein, we did a series of drone strikes to you before getting Trump's taxes. I do think that over time, that tells people we're a certain kind of news organization. And while I can't make a direct link, I, I believe that there's, a, sure. that there's a link. Well, tell us about the FT, because when you uh, became editor in 2020, um, you said you wanted all your reporters to dig very deep into corporate stories. And you landed this almighty story over a long time around Wirecard. Again, where did that begin? It starts in 2014 when um, Dan McCrum, uh, who was not at the time part of the investigative team, he worked on the Alphaville blog, gets a call from a hedge fund guy he knows. And the guy says to him, do you fancy looking at some German gangsters? Um, <laughs> Dan fancied looking at some German gangsters and um, starts digging into Wirecard. Wirecard was the least sexy company you can imagine. It's a payments company. So quite difficult to write about in an, in an engaging way. And this, at the end of the day, was an, an accounting fraud. Um, he publishes the first story. The company reacts very, very uh, badly. And... But he, he never gives up. The breakthrough, though, comes about 40, four years later when a whistleblower comes along. The whistleblower is in Singapore, and Dan and um, 
his his editor Paul and the the our correspondent in Singapore when go to see the whistleblower the whistleblower had documents that proved that could prove that the company was making up its accounts essentially half of the half of the revenues were not there and through a very very elaborate uh, fraud the problem of course is that we are in germany and rather than investigating wirecard the german authorities and the courts turn against the journalists and personalize this to an unbelievable extent. Uh, so there's a criminal investigation of the, of, of the reporters. There is a whole establishment, including some banks. I remember, I remember seeing a commerce bank uh, analyst report, which directly attacks Dan Macron. Um, I think, though, the toughest, toughest moment, and there were many, many tough moments, as the, as the reporters would tell you, and uh, our editor, Lionel, at, at the time, was when um, the FT was forced to bring in a, foreign, uh, a, um, a law firm in order to investigate our own reporters, not because anyone had doubts, in the reporters or in their reporting, but because Wirecard had gotten hold of a recording uh, from, uh, I think it was the owner of a nightclub, I mean, the, some, some really strange uh, stuff, uh, saying that, they would be that the FT would be publishing a story the next day. Uh, how he knew was literally by chance. So a company comes in, it was very tough on, on the reporters, it exonerates them. Uh, in the meantime, however, Wirecard manages to raise more money. Um, it's a happy ending. Not for them. <laughs> for us, at least. Um, Wire, Wirecard does not exist anymore. Wirecard collapses. Uh, not only does Wirecard collapse, but... The FT is the hero of the story in Germany. Um, the accountants are held to account. They're fine. They can't have any, any um, clients for a couple of years. Um, the, there's, an, um, there's a parliamentary investigation. Uh, rules are changed. So this was a bombshell in Germany. Did you get any uptick in subscribers from Germany? Oh yeah, massively. It just went, it went up like that. And obviously, as with many investigations, a lot of our subscribers write in the comments that they're willing to pay for the FT just for that one story. And Wirecard was the best example of it. Good for Dan McCrum. Uh, Nick, tell us about the origins of the phone hacking. Scandal and story. Uh, easy peasy. Uh, a, a guy got in touch with me by email, said, uh, I heard you on the radio this morning, the Today program, you may know it. Uh, you need to get in touch. I have something to tell you. Here's my number. Whatever you do, do not leave a voicemail message. <laughs> so then, then you hit these moral judgments I was talking about. It's, it, it's you know, uh, reporters from a tabloid newspaper behaving badly. It's not a story. But once I met this guy in a hotel room, very likable man, uh, who gave me the outline of the story, you can see the moral judgment start to click into place. What this is actually about is abuse of power. You have th the most powerful media mogul in this country, potentially in the world, 
The impact of him on the police is they're abusing their power and on the press regulator abusing their power. And guess what? The newspaper itself is doing the same. And at the core of most of these stories we're talking about, abuse of power is the thing. And it's a sort of massive artillery force lining up saying, we'll get you if you try and tell the truth about us. But apart from the fact that the beginning of the story is pretty easy, there's another point here which is that although it can be stressful and scary things happen, on the whole, I'd pick up on a word that was used there about Harry. It's joyful. Th this is really exciting. And it's fun. And that's a lot of what keeps you going. And you can see the fox in the distance as you're chasing. I know it was artillery. Now I'm mixing my metaphors. Journalistic license. Mm -hmm. You can see you're making progress. You're closing in on them. The bad guy, another metaphor. <laughs> and that, it's so, that, I mean, I know there's young journalists in the audience. And you, you shouldn't be put off by the scale on which the thing finally erupts, thalidomide. You think, how the hell could I do that? Actually, you start with simple stuff, and what's going on most of the time is pretty simple. You, I, I always say it's about your imagination, like car headlights in the dark. I know this much. I reckon that must be true. Who could possibly know? Ah, this, these people must know. And then the most important question, well, how could I get them to talk? Again, imagination. I'm going to get inside their world. Ha-ha, if I turn up on their doorstep and say this... And, and it, it, it's quite simple in a way. And then when you get over that doorstep, the most exciting moment is three hours later and you come out and your wrist is aching because you've filled a notebook full of notes. You think, yeah, now we're getting there. Uh, there's some <clears throat> hairy moments along the way. What was the toughest moment of that? There never were any. No, <laughs> no there, was a, there was a terrible thing. You know, we were publishing stories Dozens and dozens of stories over a two-year period, pushing them back, pushing them back. We're breaking through. They're starting to retreat. Andy Coulson has resigned as the Prime Minister's right-hand man. Scotland Yard has set up a straight press inquiry. Then we published this one story about the 12-year-old schoolgirl, Millie Dowler, who'd been abducted and murdered 10 years earlier. And we discovered the News of the World had hacked her voicemail. That's got the emotional punch. It breaks through. Other news organizations, which had been deliberately refusing to cover it, often because they themselves had been committing crimes, were pulled in. Okay. Four months later, as a result of the impact of that story, which meant that the police had to dig deeper into their archives, new evidence emerged, which confirmed line after line after line of that story, but through really significant doubt on a key element. I could go into the detail, but I think you'll shout at me. But a key element of that story was suddenly insignificant doubt. And it, it, I, uh, to get to the end of the story, then I'll go, at the end of the day, we still don't know the truth about that. On the balance of the evidence available, it's possible we were right. But I would say 70%, it's more likely we were wrong. Now, no reporter wants to publish a story that turns out to be false. Well, maybe Fox News. <laughs> uh, least of all do you want to do that when you're struggling against powerful people who can do everything, who are doing everything they can to conceal the truth. Least of all when those powerful people publish newspapers which specialize in falsehood and distortion. But I mean, this, so it just, it's joyful, it's fun, it's exciting. But there are moments that are stressful yeah. and it's scary and you need friends. James, uh, tell us about London Grad, because when you launched Tortoise Media, it was this, uh, the idea was slow news, and then you had this podcast, which I think has been pretty transformative. Uh, and it now focuses uh, in its latest iteration from uh, your report to Paul Carawada Galifia on Iran. But before that, it focused on my former bosses, the Lebedevs. Tell us the origin of that story. 
So um, the, the, the story, if you didn't see it, was, to, was an investigation in how did Evgeny Lebedev, um, uh, at that stage a, a young man in his early 40s, son of a uh, KGB, FSB agent in London, become a member of the House of Lords. Um, and uh, it's really a story, not so much about him, but about us, about the way in which power and the press was co-opted not just by money, but mostly by parties, really good parties. He invited lots of people. Political parties. Yeah, yeah. He invited people to very, very glamorous, very fun parties, and along the way, some of the most powerful people, including our prime minister, were essentially brought into a relationship that that just seemed bizarre. And then the closer you looked at it, wrong. And and the answer to your question, Amal, is uh, it started. I know that we talk about ChatGPT and AI. It started with a slightly older-fashioned journalistic technology, which is called Lunch. I, I, I went for lunch, and um, I was asking a member of the House of Lords that it happened about Lebedev, because I think a lot of the stories that we talk about, some of the stories we talked about this morning, they're scandals in plain sight. They're things that you look at and you think, how's that possible? And, and the member of the House of Lords said something to me, which given his character seemed to say a lot, which was, it's not right. And, and I went back and I said to Paul Caruana Galizia, who's a, um, a reporter at Tortoise, I said, uh, listen, all I can tell you is that, so it's not much of a tip, but if this person says it's not right, it's probably not right. Can you go away and take a look at it? And, and what Paul did was spend the time really understanding the relationship between Evgeny Lebedev and Boris Johnson, the relationship between the papers and the party, and then the process. And the process is really interesting in terms of the extent to which the national security agencies raised a hand and said, we're worried about this. Significant members of the government and, and party said the same. And yet the coziness of that relationship won through, trumped everything. And the toughest moment? It's interesting. I was listening to Dean about that point around that moment when the subject of a story gets in touch and says, can we have a word? And I think it's really interesting the way Dean frames it. And I was, t I was tempted to say that, but actually I think the thing that can be really hard for as much as we all talk about time and Harry's commitment to time is the extent to which people in power play you for time. And so what you'll get is either someone like Evgeny Lebedev saying, sure, I'm happy to be in part of this, I'll give you an interview then. Well, actually, I can't do it then, maybe in two weeks' time. Oh, actually, well, how about in a couple of months? And that was one side of it. And at the same time, the government kicks you into the long grass. They essentially said, look, you know, we need to go to a proper process here to understand exactly how the House of Lords Appointment Commission made this decision, and months and months and less and less is revealed. And so, strangely, time gets played uh, against you. And that's, and that's as much as we talk about giving ourselves time to do the reporting, we're also, as Dean says, in a competitive business, and we're under pressure and probably temperamentally impatient. And I think you had, I think I heard you say on a podcast, you did see an uptick in your subscriber numbers. Your membership actually grew because people loved that podcast. Yes, it's, it, the, the, the difficulty, I think, with the kind of point you're making, Amal, is it's not a straight line and it doesn't always work. So, so what we saw, for example, was, you know, London Grad in its first episode did double what we'd normally see. And as a result of that, there was a sort of uptick of probably about 20% just week on week from there on in. And so you do see more subscribers 
the, the issue is that you don't have an obvious correlation between the time and resources you put into an investigation and what you get out commercially. And I think to Nick's point right at the beginning, you shouldn't think in that way. You've got to think overall, what are we here for? And then over time, believe that people will come and support it and engage in it. And, and a colleague of mine, Charles Patel, says, you know, we also have to be careful. You know, there are only three kinds of stories, right? Stories you should read, stories you want to read, and stories you do read. And we've got to make sure we plan the third. Rula. I think uh, James is absolutely right. That's not what you think about when, when um, you are working on a story. But good journalism is very expensive. And we have to be cognizant of, of that. Um, the problem today is that a lot, a lot of lo we don't see a lot of local journalism anymore because whether it is, I mean, it, especially in the UK, the lawyers can put you under incredible pressure. We can withstand it. Dean can withstand it. Uh, James can withstand it. But a lot of organizations cannot withstand it. And so they will, they will not pursue investigations because of that. So I think, I think the economics of journalism is actually very important today. But trust in journalism and trust in news is, is falling off a cliff. And Dean, there was um, a bit of polling out from YouGov uh, America just this week showing... Actually, weirdly showed the BBC, not weirdly, but showed the BBC was highly respected in America, but showed, generally speaking, trust in news is falling off a cliff. And if you think about the 20th century and you think about figures like Harry Evans, like you guys, like Woodward and Bernstein who are at this event, there was a time when the newsman or newswoman was this archetype, this kind of cool figure, sometimes played by Humphrey Bogart, <laughs> someone who is noble, someone who's fun, someone who's cool. That's kind of collapsing. How do we go about restoring it and make it cool to be a hack again? Some of, hack, it, <laughs> some of it makes sense. That it, remember, we've, we've just spent four years with the President of the United States relentlessly attacking news organizations that did tough reporting about him. That, that's contributed. But, but I actually think investigative reporting, um, when it's right, when it's true, when it has impact, will, will help to restore our reputations. I do. I think that, um, I just think that Stories, and it, it, going back to almost all of the stories we're talking about, they affected the world. They affected change. And I think that the, you should not let fear of trust or fear of how people will regard you keep you from doing that work. I, I, think, I think all of us are talking about the long game, right? Can I prove that the day after Harvey Weinstein's stories that suddenly our circulation went up? No. And, I'm, and I bet everybody else can say the same thing. Can I say that the institutions that do that kind of work relentlessly end up thriving? I suspect if we look down the line that that's true. Yeah, absolutely. James, final word to you. Can you give us a, um, let's go back to Harry to finish with. Is there a moment, is there a story, is there a brief anecdote? I said we can't have any long digressions, but is there something that you think, your experience of him, that captures the essence of the guy? Well, fun fact, we were sitting here, I thought of a moment that we'd had in New York just when we launched Tortoise. And it was a bit like, a bit like the beginnings of this conversation um, that we had this morning, and where you know you introduce everyone warmly. So Harry's there. I introduced him. He was sitting, I think, in the second row, and obviously I, he's Harry Evans. Right? I mean, you, you can you know pretend as much as you like that you're not starstruck, but you still are. And he's Harry Evans, and so I give him this kind of gushing introduction on what a wonderful person he is, and what an inspiration he is, and the greatest editor of the 20th century, and the whole ruggedy buggedy boo. And at the 
we then get into the conversation about the regulation of the internet and we're going through a conversation like this and we're all congratulating ourselves on the important work that we're doing and 20 minutes in, Harry's obviously bored and he stands up and he just goes at me and all the rest of us on the panel and just says, have any of you read section 230? Who knows the words here to section 230? Does anyone know what the rules are? Governing platforms, the reason we've got... And he absolutely tore a strip off us. And that was... To go back to that point about don't mistake geniality for pliability, that was the thing about him, that there was something relentless about him that even amongst his friends, what he cared about always was getting after the truth and making sure we went for the subject that mattered. And so that's why I'm inspired by him still, and I suspect we all are. It's a wonderful note on which we end. Guys, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Truth Tellers from Tortoise Media in partnership with the Sahari Evans Global Summit in Investigative Journalism, Tina Brown Media, Reuters and Durham University. Tortoise is a newsroom dedicated to slow news and to support investigative journalism, you can join Tortoise as a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash slowdown. Tortoise. 